while you're seated, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 as you do. You know how home renovation projects can have a tendency to take on a life of their own. And you can start them with one plan and then you get into them and realize this isn't quite turning out the way we had anticipated. And what at one moment seemed like a great idea just to make these little minor tweaks to the bathroom and then before you know it, you don't have water for three days and your uh, kitchen doesn't work. And you can get to them and you know, the typical wisdom is that whatever the allocated budget is, you should double it. And whatever the allocated time that is set aside, you should double that. And then certain things can happen and say, wait, oh, are we actually, is there a plan that's being followed or just kind of winging it? Bring a couple images of things where, you know, can happen and you look at and you wonder, is this, was this intentional? Liz, can we bring up some of that? We had some issues with the computer earlier, so we'll try. So you, you got a faucet. It's like, was that, was it originally designed to go there? Or did somebody think that was a good idea? Or, oh, honey, I got a great idea for how I'm going to remodel the bathroom, but it seems so much larger on paper. And then you, you get yourself in situations and you come up with all types of like creative ways to solve the problem. Um, <laughs> Or you can go and you can look at something and you say, wait, was that like originally designed to be that way? Or did somebody leave something out? Bring up the next slides. Um, so I, was that, were we following the actual blueprint? Was that where the balcony was supposed to go? Or is this, is this door, like, is that the new design for a local high school where you send kids out for detention? Is that the door there? Or was like, did we forget a step? And you look, all right, were, were we following blueprints or just kind of winging it? Was something left out? And I'm excited today because we're going to start a new series. It's going to run from now until the end of June called Blueprint, and we're going to look at the house that Jesus builds. So we're going to go from Matthew chapter 16 through 20, because in this section, this section, Jesus is giving his blueprint, his building plan for how he's going to build his house. And I think this is probably the most important section of Matthew for us as a church, just where we are uh, today. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit. We have, we're moving through. We're in chapter 14. But we're going to jump to 16, and then we'll come back uh, at a later time. But this, in essence, is Jesus' ecclesiology. This is what he expects or how he's going to build his house. And Matthew's whole gospel is a discipleship manual on how how to live uh, as his people in his world. And it's structured around five major teaching blocks where he's going to teach us something. Each block teaches us something essential about how we live in the world. And in this section is the fourth major teaching block where he teaches what does it mean to be his people, his community, his house. So why is this so important at this time for just us in the life of our church, just kind of where we are? You know, in our just over five years of existence, I think we've already kind of gone through like three major life stages. So like life stage one uh, was the initial uh, stage where we uh, were trying to raise money, gather our core group, trying to launch. We were under the umbrella of Grace Lake Nona then. We were meeting in the evenings at Eagle Creek. And it was about 20 months where that first life stage was just 
Like we're like an infant. Can you just survive? That's the goal. Like survive one day to the next. And then we moved into life stage two. We're trying to become self-sustaining. And there's kind of three key marks where you're self-sustaining financially, self-governing, and self-propagating. And we moved into Sunday morning, became Trinity Lake Nona in about 20, 22 months in that stage. And kind of that goal of that stage was like, let's move out of infant stage to begin to be like toddler. And we're we're wobbly, but we're starting to walk. And let's see if we can stand on our own two feet. And that was going for about 20, 22 months. And then March 2020 kind of hit. And then we kind of went under the shadow. Life stage number three, that the whole world kind of went under the, the weird shadow that was COVID and the, just the weirdness of 2020. And that year has extended into about two and a half and that stage three, and I'm really hopeful because I think as a church, we're kind of moving out of that stage. And in that stage, you know, the goal really was just to survive again, just kind of survive. And, um, and this past week, one of the emails went out just about the giving. So everyone who's, who's faithfully given to Trinity, you know, we thank you for the way you've faithfully given. You know, one, since we've been able to just kind of survive and, uh, you know, kind of look in stage three, we did have the dips, had about 30, 35% dip in attendance, about 30, 35% dip in giving, but able to, to hold on. I think the thing that was most kind of challenging for us is just the relational transition that we saw. You know, we knew that this area is, is an area of high turnover. So a lot of relational or a lot of, uh, it's very transient. But uh, I wasn't quite expecting this scale. But when I was looking like in 2018, January of 2018, uh, we had 90 regularly serving volunteers who served in our different ministry teams. And then of January 2022, just four years later, only nine are still here at the church from that 90. And, uh, and many, many, vast majority just have moved away. So, you know, we're thinking of it as a like fledgling organization trying to get on our feet. That kind of amount of transition, turnover, been a big challenge. But we're really hopeful and excited because we think we're moving out of stage three. And I was saying we're moving into stage four, but then I started thinking stage four might not have the best connotation to it. So moving, the, but this is the fourth kind of stage. And in many ways, uh, you know, the goal of stage one was just survive. The goal of stage three was survive. And stage four is kind of moving back. It's almost like our chance to do stage two again, where it's a great mercy where we get to return to lay the foundation because our goal, our desire is long-term ministry in this community for generations. So laying a foundation and Matthew 16 through 20 is such a gift because Jesus gives us his blueprint for how he's going to build his church. And so we're going to spend the next five months just slowly working through it. I think it's a wonderful time to slowly, thoughtfully make sure right, we understand what he's telling us to do and then try and figure out like, how can we do that faithfully here. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of give you an overview of the blueprint of what we're going to look at the next five months. So in many ways, this kind of, I know this is fire hydrant of info. So don't try and like take it all in. Just try and ask the Lord to help you just kind of see the big picture. So we're going to just kind of give you an overview of Matthew 16 through 20. 
and the blueprint that Jesus lays. And what he does is kind of puts it in phases. So any good building projects kind of, kind of move through phases. Phase one, phase two, phase three. So phase one is chapter 16, verse 13 through 28. And we'll call it phase one is laying the foundation. And that's what Jesus is going to do in that part of Matthew 16. Here, he's going to teach us what makes a church a church. He's going to give us the two non-negotiable rocks, the core foundation upon which he's going to build. And anything, a life, church, anything that's not built on these things will not stand. And what you see, those two things are a confession and a commitment. So the great confession that happens in chapter 16, where Jesus asks the disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, some say this, some say that. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus praises him in verse 18 or 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we're going to see that confession that Peter makes, that you are the Christ, that is the rock, and Jesus is going to build his church on top of that confession. And then there's a call of commitment to follow him. In verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So the core, the foundation is this confession that he's the Christ and this commitment to follow him. And as we think about that, all right, that confession that he's the Christ, well, what does that mean? When you're confessing that Jesus is Christ, you know, Jesus Christ, like Jesus is not his first name and Christ is not his last name. Uh, Christ is the designation of who he is, his job, his role, his responsibility. Or you could think about it as his last name. If you think about how last names in many places used to function, you know, many places, a last name used to designate like your role in the community. So like I'm Ben Bailey. Bailey is Irish from Bailiff. We were the bailiffs who would make sure we kept you in prison when you got thrown in there. That was my family's occupation. Or you might think, you know, Smith, they were the, the different blacksmith or woodsmith, different Smiths or all types of last names. Uh, some of them have resonance to your occupation. So maybe a fun thing to figure out is what does your last name mean? But Christ means it's a title. These are his roles. And it's three different uh, jobs that he has. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. He's the ruler, the teacher, the savior. And so what we're going to do is build the structure of our church on the rock of those three titles, those three things that he came to do. And then the commitment is to follow him. So in this first section, phase one is all about this is at the core what makes a church a church. A church that confesses that he's the Christ and then is committed to following him together. And what we saw from like last week, what, uh, what Rob preached, and we saw that God's greatest good for us is that we be conformed to the image of his son, Anything that can work to conform us individually into the image of his son is his greatest good. But that's true of us individually, but it's also true of any church organizationally. Like we want our church organizationally to be formed and shaped into the image of the son that performs those three great tasks of preaching his word, of following where he leads, and then healing the broken and uh, those tasks. So that's the foundation. 
And uh, one of the gifts is, you know, here's a foundation that you can build upon. You know, it's a sad thing when you see anybody in their life where they've kind of built something and then they watch it crumble. You know, a couple of, probably not this Christmas, but the Christmas before, uh, my, my son was really, my five-year-old, he was four then, uh, was really getting into Star Wars Legos. And even framing it that he was getting into that is a little... Maybe he had some parental encouragement. Actually, I think I think I shoved him into uh, Star Wars Legos, but he wanted to. And he got a couple different X-wings, and then we got, you know, had to complement with Tie Fighters so we could have the different starship battles. And it was spent days where, you know, meticulously and slowly putting each piece together, and got them all built. And then, of course, you know, one day we try, whenever friends come over, we try to make sure we put them up. But one day, friends came over, friend and little brother, they see the X-Wing fleet and the TIE fighters, and they want to play with it. And you can even see the internal turmoil, like, okay, I guess well, we got to be careful. You got to hold it just like this. And, you know, we, and then, you know, they're running through the living room, and we have tile floors. And you all know what happened. It was the little brother, of course. The little brother is holding the TIE fighter and then drops it, and then you just hear the shatter. And then you look and you watch him, and you know, he's trying like, not to be angry. He's trying to you know, be hospitable to his guests, but the little lip is just quivering because he's just seen all his work just shatter at his feet. And it's a sad thing when you see a little boy's life work shatter at their feet. Let me tell you a story about another little boy. He saw his work shatter at his feet. His name is Patrick McGinnis. And uh, his story is told in uh, Greg McCowan's book, Effortless. But Patrick says he had done all the things he was supposed to do, checked all the boxes for success, graduated from Georgetown, then graduated from Harvard Business School, joined the ranks of a top finance and insurance company, put in the long weekends he felt were expected of him to the tune of 80 hours per week, even on weeks when he was supposed to be on vacation. Uh, said he never left the office before his boss. Sometimes it felt like he never left the office at all. He traveled so much for work that he earned the highest frequent flyer status on Delta, a level so high they didn't even have a name for it. He was on the board of four different international, uh, four different companies on three different continents. And uh, he thought this was a badge of honor till looking back, but he even bragged that once he refused to stay home uh, when he was sick because uh, he had to do a presentation at a board meeting, even though he had to leave the board meeting three different times to throw up in the bathroom. And when he came back, one of his colleagues said he looked awful and looked green, but he still powered through it because he thought the way you achieve anything in life is you, you power through it. So this is part of my New Englander mindset. Your work ethic is your character. And uh, he said, I would even take that to the next level. Yeah. He said if he didn't think he was working endless hours, uh, then th that wouldn't lead to any type of, or he said he didn't think that working endless hours would lead to success. He says that is success. He thought if you don't stay late at your work, you must not have a job that's worth doing until one day he saw it all shatter. The company he worked for was AIG. One day in 2008, uh, his stock in AIG dropped 97%, and he was looking at the, his life shattered. He said, all of the late nights at the office, all the countless red-eye flights to South America, Europe, China, all the missed birthdays, all the missed celebrations, they had been for nothing. He said, when the financial crisis hit, 
he was shattered. He couldn't get out of bed. He started having night sweats and night terrors. His vision blurred. He'd go see the doctor, but they couldn't find anything physically wrong with him. And what Matthew gives us is this great gift where Matthew says, all right, there's these words that can be like a rock. And if you build your life on that foundation, storms are coming. Crises are coming. They are coming. That's, that's not if, it's just when, but if you build your life on that foundation, it won't shatter. You won't have that moment where you see everything you've hoped for, worked for, loved, and longed just crash at your feet. It won't shatter. And part of the beautiful irony is in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew te- or Jesus tells us, he says, if you hear my words and put them into practice, you're like a wise man who's building his house on the rock. But then here in a beautiful reversal in chapter 16, he tells Peter, he says, all right, I am going to take your faithful words and I am going to build my house on your words. So if you build your house on my words, you'll stand. And then I'm going to build my house on your words. It's a beautiful picture. But what it gives us is that if the most important thing, if you're trying to build your life is to build on this foundation. And the most important thing is we're trying to build this church is to build on that foundation. Phase one is the foundation. It has to be right. And that's what's given us in chapter 16. Then in chapter 17, he goes and gives us the house rhythms. You know, every household has just certain rhythms, certain routines about the way you go about your day. The rhythms, the routines, they reflect the greatest priorities about uh, that you have in that house. So what Jesus says in chapter 17, it says, this is the, the rhythms, the priorities of my house. Notice in 17 verse one, it says, after six days, Jesus took up with him, Peter, James, and John. He's going to lead them up the mountain into his presence. And then they go down the mountain out into the world. And we're going to do six sermons on chapter 17 because 17 gives us the rhythms of the house. And it explains to us that the point of the house is to go up into his presence and worship and then down out into the world with his power. So the rhythms and the routine, the point of them are to enter his presence so we can go into the world with power, presence and power. So we're going to talk about things like worship. Why do we worship the way we do? What's the point? Why is it so important to have it as the rhythmic uh, routine of your life where every seven days together we're going up into his presence, then out into the world, presence and power. This is what's most important to experience and to live with. And this is the rhythms and the routine that are meant to shape your time. And to orient yourself. You know, you can all tell really like what's most important by how we orient our life. What are the non-negotiables that get put into the calendar as we orient around sports or self-care or work? And Jesus says, this in my house is what I want you to orient yourself around. And, you know, this is a challenge. This is a great challenge even before COVID because there's so many opportunities, you know, so many things to do uh, here in the kind of the, the recreational capital of the, at least the South, maybe, maybe the U.S., but even, so it was challenging before, but then even more challenging now. But what this section is going to do is to give us a sense of these are Jesus' priorities for the rhythms of his house. And I love the simplification of it. This is the time rhythm. And then you'll see in the transfiguration where God says, I love, this is my beloved son whom I love. Listen to him. 
That the most important things is to come into a presence and to love him and to listen to him. That's supreme over everything else. And, you know, one of the challenge, anytime you're engaged in a building project, so like you're going to do a home renovation and renovate or do something add on to your home. Um, There's the project that you're doing, but then, you know, there's the like, how do you word it? The under, not current, the underlying reason or hope behind the project. So like you want to put into a pool and it's not really about the pool. It might be more about the family time that you can have around it. Or you want to put in like a patio area to grill where it's not necessarily about the grill as much the, the family time around the meal, around the table. And one of the temptations is to think you can't experience the thing hoped for until you get the project completed. But you actually can experience wonderful family time before the pool gets there. You can experience wonderful meals at your home before you finish the grill. And one of the temptations is to think, all right, we won't actually experience that until it's done. And that'll be a great temptation just in any organization, especially a church that's trying to build. You think, oh, there's all these things that I want or need, um, and I can't experience until we have them. So it's a temptation for parents. Like, all right, we need things for our children. We need discipleship programs for them. We need youth group. We need these things for them. But they think, no, what they need is to learn to love and listen to Jesus. They need to come into his presence. And even before we can have those other things, they can still experience this. Because that's what's most important. Coming to his presence, following into these rhythms. So that's what he gives, phase two. Here's my household rhythms. And then in phase three, which is we're going to look at from chapter 18, 19, and 20, Jesus gives us his house rules. So, all right, this is how I expect my family to act in my house. There are certain expectations. There are certain rules. And, you know, every home has just certain expectations about how we're, how we're going to act here. And so the first part, chapter 18, gives Jesus' expectations for his house. And, you know, it's funny, you know, sometimes we'll kind of joke because we'll watch commercials and we'll think, like, that commercial was really funny. Do you have any idea what they were selling? Like, what was the product? And somebody actually asked, I'd love to talk to a marketer about what, like, why, why is that? And somebody came up and gave me their uh, marketing philosophy on why they do that. But there's so many commercials where you think, like, yeah, that, like, that green lizard is funny. What product, like, what do they sell? And one of the things that, one of the commercials that we, we really love seeing is the Geico commercials about new homeowners can, you know, we can't keep you from becoming like your parents. And then, but we can save you uh, money on your home insurance. So at least you know what they're selling. And then, you know, there's kind of humorous things. And one of the ones that we think is most funny was they're kind of going through the house and trying to clear it of all the things to keep you from becoming like your parents. So the one, the lady has like 48 pillows on the couch and he has to pull some of them off. And you, as he's pulling them off, you can just see her. She's like, ah, ah, ah. he's like, look, now people can sit. And, you know, he has the first one where he's like, do we really need a sign that says live, love? 
and laugh. And they're like, yes, no. And he throws it in the trash. And he's like, and then it ends where she's holding up a sign. And she's like, in this house, there's no fussing, no cussing. And he just shakes, no, and throws it in the trash. And she's like, and you know, every house just kind of has these house rules. These are the rules of the house. And in chapter 18, Jesus gives you, these are the rules of my house. And it's going to be marked by certain things. So we're going to spend six weeks going through his house rules. And he says, sacrificial love is the banner that marks everything in our house. And it's going to be marked by our flexibility, our humility, our sensitivity. And then he moves into the next one, not just who we are. This is who we are, but this is what we do. In this house, what sacrificial love does is it seeks after those who are lost. It confronts when it's needed and it forgives. And in this section, this is Jesus' sermon on the congregation. This is the fourth of the major teaching blocks. And what he's telling us, he says, this is how I expect my my children to act. Actually, flip back one. Because he says, all right, this is how I expect you to act in 17. Because you're going to be around your non-Christian friends and neighbors. And the way I expect you to act around them is with a certain free and willing flexibility. You're not to be unnecessarily offensive around them. And this is how I expect you to act. Uh, You're going to be around other competitive brothers and sisters in the church, fellow Christians. There's a temptation to compete with one another. And I expect you to act with humility and sensitivity. You know, this is one of the remarkable things. You know, I have a brother, so I guess I was like this, but I don't remember. But... So in our house, we, you know, we have four kids and we have to be out of the house uh, for school by seven o'clock in the morning. And that might not sound early to you, but you you can come try to get out the door by seven. So sometimes it feels a little manic. And one morning this past week, I walked by and my five, my two boys, my five-year-old, my four-year-old, they were sitting at the table and they looked like cartoons. They had, they were holding their cereal bowls and it looked like they were just like shoveling it into their mouth. And I watch it. And then my five-year-old like tips up the bowl and he just starts like chugging the milk. And then he slams the plastic bowl down, looks over and goes, finished winner. And then my four-year-old looks at him and goes, ah, and just slams his head on the table. And I, and I looked at him, and you know my first thought, everyone, the first thing I said is, it's not a competition. Like, what are you doing? There's milk all over the, and I say, it's not a competition. And then I thought for a second, now I don't know if this is skillful parenting or not. <laughs> We've tried it one time. I will tell you next week. If it, but I said, okay, good job. Three points. You finish first. Uh-uh-uh. There's milk all over the table. I deduct two points for messiness, and Sam helped you get your bowl and spoon, so I give him five points for helping. He has five, you have one, and then each time, what? And then he said, well, can I get my two points back if I clean up my milk? Yes, you can get your two points back. So he starts cleaning up. Can, can I get four points if I take his bowl? Yep, I'll give you four. And so by the end, the table was clean again. And I started thinking, so I, no, it's, my first thought is, it's not a competition. What are you doing? Well, maybe it is a competition. We just have the scorecard completely wrong. 
Maybe here's the scorecard. The scorecard is you humbly loving and serving those around you. The scorecard is not, are you first, but are you helping others around you? That's exactly what Jesus tells us in these two sections. Like, in my house, if you want to be great. Look at verse chapter uh, 18, verse 4. They're arguing over who's the greatest, who's first. He says, if you want to be great, you humble yourself like a child, and then you serve it is a competition. That's just the scorecard. And then what he goes on to tell us is that my house is not a platform for you to promote yourself. This is a place where you take care. You look to the little people. You look to the little things. This is not a place for you to exalt yourself. It's a place where you're sensitive and you're aware and you take care of the little ones around you. A couple years ago, I mentioned this before, and I was listening to a, was a fascinating interview with one of the great music producers of all time, and there were so many interesting things that kind of, he, he was talking about in this interview, but one of the questions that really took me, kind of took me aback, and I still don't know what to make of this dynamic, but one of the questions was, isn't it interesting, have you ever thought about how many kind of current stars all got their beginning in the church? They'll start in the church. And many of those same people don't claim to be people of faith now. Some do, but many don't. And then they said, yeah, you know, it's kind of wild. You look at like Elvis, Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, Katy Perry, Denzel Washington, Faith Hill, Brad Pitt, Carrie Underwood, Jessica Simpson, all got their, their start in the church. And the interviewer asked him, said, well, why do you think that is? What is it about, you know, why they get their start there? He says, I don't know. I guess it was, it, was, it was the one place that was willing to give them a platform, give them the stage. And that just struck me that the Christ house is not about giving people platforms and stages. Like this is about humility and service. Great book by Yuval Levin, who is called The Time to Build. And you know, he says one of the great problems in our society right now is we had all these institutions that were designed to form and shape you, educational institutions, political institutions, social church, civic institutions, where they're meant to shape you into a certain type of person, but they've all been transformed. So no, no longer do they do formation. They're not for formation. They're, they're now platforms for personal presentation where they've been, in essence, taken over. Institutions have been hijacked. So they no longer form you, but they're used so to display you. But Jesus said, this is not the way my house works. And then what we do, so you can go to the next one, what we do is then in situations where uh, this is how we act around weak and fellow Christians, we seek them. And then when they're slipping and drifting, and then there's times of confrontation, uh, there's loving confrontation that ends in forgiveness, but this is the way we act in this house. And then the second phase of the house rules part two, Jesus in verse nine or chapter 19 and 20, then moves into, all right, what are some house rules for your house? Here he gives us God's will for things like marriage, for things like money, work. He starts to answer really challenging questions like what are we, how do we think of marriage? Does God allow divorce? What are the conditions? Does Jesus have anything particular to say about the single life? In this perspective, is it even to be preferred or better? How are we to think about children? What's their role in the kingdom? How are they to be treated? How are they to be brought to Jesus? What role does money play in his kingdom? Is there a connection 
connection between wealth and salvation. He answers all of those questions in chapter 19. And then he sums it up just brilliantly and beautifully in chapter 20, where he gives these challenge to the first Christian leadership, where he's talking about their work and all those who follow them and says in chapter 20, says the things that can be toxic and will destroy my house and your house is selfish pride and selfish ambition that we have to attack. You have to check your selfish pride and your selfish ambition because that's what destroys homes, mine and yours. And so what he does in this whole section from 16 all the way through 20, uh, what he's going to do is paint such a beautiful picture of the type of house that he wants to build. You know, it's a beautiful picture of what a real counterculture can community can look like. And as we go through slowly, work our ways through this picture, what I hope we'll all grasp is that deep down, this is the type of house that we all truly, deeply long to live in, long to be a part of. And this type of house is worth understanding. It's worth knowing about, and it's worth laboring and sacrificing to build. And at the very center of his house is a table where he beckons you to come and come into his presence at his table. And so every week we celebrate that invitation of the father to his table to come into his presence. Now, why do we come? We come because he's holy and gracious. He's good and loving and God made us for himself. But when we had sinned against him and we turned away to our own evil, we turned, we became subject to evil and death in his mercy. He sent his son into the world for us and for our salvation, who by the Holy Spirit, he became man and dwelt among us. And in obedience to the will of the Father, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and he offered himself once and for all so that by his suffering and death, we might be saved. Those who were outcasts might be brought in. Those who had no home might be given and be made part of his home. Then by his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling on hell and Satan under his feet. Now as the great high priest, he says, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks for it. And then he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Likewise, after the supper, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So Lord, we give you praise for the formation of your house. We praise you for the gift that it is to be called your sons and daughters. And we ask that you help us all to know what a priceless gift that is and then to live out of its beauty, its strength, its encouragement, its power. So we confess to you, we commit uh, this next stage and this season to you. We ask that you help us. We ask that you help form each of us individually into the image of your son. And then we ask that you help us to form our church organizationally into the image of your son. We all confess our need to build our life on the rock, on the foundation so that we can endure. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying savior the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.